All right, turn with me again, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Lord willing, we will complete chapter 6 this morning. Um, let's ask the Lord to lead us as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege to be in your house. Father, we thank you that um, we have immense freedom to gather we fully recognize this morning that your church in various places of this world is embattled and under assault from the enemy. And yet you have your remnant, which you have called out, that you have set aside that are faithful to you and that are upholding your word and your testimony this morning. And we thank you for that. And we pray that we would be the same. Help us as we study your word this morning that you might be glorified. Father, that we would see the solemnity and the seriousness of what we're about to study. We thank you again for the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we continue in our study, the opening of the seven seals, we come to the sixth seal. And remember last week we examined the opening of the fifth seal. And just a reminder of the context, the first four seals were the first four horsemen, if you guys remember. The earthly judgments through um, the carrying out, the releasing of these horsemen, if you will, by the angels before the throne. These judgments were limited in nature, and they are reminders to earth dwellers that the great day is coming. Meanwhile, with the opening of the fifth seal, we see the martyring of the church. Mark talked about the Lord answering prayer and the opening of the fifth seal that we studied last week was a reminder that he hears the prayers of his saints who have been martyred and who are asking for justice to be carried out. The full conclusion of redemptive history at the return of Christ. And they're told to wait for just a little while longer until what must be accomplished in their brethren who must also suffer would come to pass. The fifth seal reminded us that while the world has experienced the birth pains of the coming great judgment of the Lamb, the church is carrying out its mission while under great duress. And if you remember, when we looked at the fifth seal in verses 9 through 11, the altar is situated before the throne or in front of the throne. A reminder that all persecution that takes place is done so in the providential shadow of the throne. Important reminder for us, Psalm 116.15 reminds us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The saints are also situated under the refuge of the altar. They're resting in the finished work of Christ. They're clothed in white robes not of their own making. They are not atoning for their own sin. That's not the picture of them under the altar. It is the picture of Christ being their Sabbath. And they also have a sanctified understanding. We're given just a hint of the mindset of the saints who are now reigning with Christ until the full fruition of redemptive history. What do they think? The saints that have gone before us that are in the presence of God, and it says in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 6, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, 
holy and true. Where do they know that? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're told to rest a while. We talked about the fact that this was important for us in terms of our focus. Because God's desire and his primary concern for our lives is not our comfort. It's not our happiness. But it is, in fact, our holiness and our sanctification. That flies in the face with much of what we hear from modern Christendom. But God is intimately concerned with the suffering of the saints. It's precious in his eyes, and the scripture reminds us that he will shorten the days of tribulation. Why? For the elect's sake. If you are a blood-bought saint this morning, you fall into that category. And he cares about the tribulation of his people. And there's comfort in that. He is determined, though, as part of his sovereign plan of redemption, to use the death and suffering of the saints for the advancement of his kingdom, for the witnessing of the gospel, for the condemnation of the unbelieving who will hear that gospel and reject it. There are many times when you talk to someone, you witness to someone, and you think, they didn't believe, I wasted my time. No, they didn't. In many cases, if that person goes on and dies in their unbelief, the Lord has used the witness of the gospel to heap on their heads condemnation. His word does not return void. We talked last week as well about the book of Revelation impacting our thinking and our affections. I told you it it has done that for me and continues to do it. And it's, it's a reminder to me about our focus on what is important. What matters in this life. We spend a lot of time chasing shadows, things that are not going to last, things that won't matter in the final analysis. In the midst of all the tragedy and the suffering and the persecution that we, that we see in this life, God is gathering his elect. And the book of Revelation is intended to help us see life from his perspective. Remember, things are not what they seem to be. We are also reminded that the the following following of the suffering of the saints as they preach the gospel will bring an end to history. And that brings us to the sixth seal. I want to take you back to our parallel passage again for just a second. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Matthew 24, verse 29 through 31, it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Does it sound familiar with what we just read? Jesus continues in verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels. The prophet Joel calls these angels his army. He will send out his army with a loud trumpet call. And what will they do? They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's immediately following the tribulation of those days. One of the most powerful passages in scripture 
that prove to us that we are in fact in the last days. If you're wondering, it's not speculation to say we're in the last days. Scripture tells us that. In Acts chapter 2, when we find the Spirit of God powerfully moving on the early church, what happens? They, they speak in tongues. The, the, the gospel goes out to the hearers in their own language. There's a powerful display of the empowering of the Spirit of God on the church, which caused the gospel to spread into all the world because people were hearing. By the way, people were not hearing mumbo jumbo. This was not just a this was not a spiritual sideshow. People were hearing the gospel preached in their language and they took it and they went home and it scattered the gospel into all the nations. That's what was happening in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter two is, is some of the hearers are hearing the gospel in a different language. Some of them said, these guys are drunk. These guys shouldn't be drinking on a Sunday morning. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But listen to verse 16 of Acts chapter 2. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And here's what it's, he's quoting Joel when he says, and in the last days, it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter was directly attributing the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel that, that the spirit of God would be poured out on his people in the last days is right there. So the last days began at the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the last days. So it brings us to the sixth seal. And the sixth seal, there, there's going to be, as we go through our study in the book of Revelation, there will be several different views of the same thing. And as we talked about having different perspectives, the, the, the camera at the wedding, remember? We have different perspectives of, of the same event, and that's what we're going to see. This is the great day. And, and the question that is before us this morning is the very last statement, the very last verse. The great day of their wrath, meaning the Lamb and him who is seated on the throne, has come, and who can stand? That's the question. Who can stand? Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the, and the full moon became like blood. We just sang the song that Jesus, our Messiah, Do you remember what happened when the veil was torn in the same stanza. What, what, is it, what does it say? The whole earth trembled. John, in his continuing perspective and vision of, of the, the seals being opened up. And by the way, when it says he opened the sixth seal, who is it talking about? John? Who is worthy to open the seals? The lamb, yes. He's referring to Jesus. When he, Jesus, the Lamb, opened the six seals, remember that all of redemptive history is moving in and through the Lamb. 
The lamb is the central focus. He is the reason for all things. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, and and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All of redemptive history. All of history is redemptive history, and it's all about Christ. He is, he is the only one worthy to open the seals. So what does John see? John looked, and there was a great earthquake. You ever been in an earthquake before? So we had one in Wilkes County, what, two or three years ago? Um, I was, I don't know where everybody was, but I was at home, and it's, it was the strangest thing. You, the, the house started shimmying. Thinking that's odd, and I, the, my first thought was there was a horse on the porch, right? Crazy thing. I mean, it's funny what you think in the middle of an earthquake, right? But I thought the horse got loose and it came up on the porch, but it wasn't a horse. But this, this is described as a mega. It's the Greek word, the Greek word megas, a mega earthquake. Um. The Greek for earthquake there is seismos. And this earthquake is huge. It shakes and disrupts the entire universe. It even impacts the heavens. Now, as we go through this, I want to remind you of something. This is figurative language of a literal event. Okay, figurative language of a literal event. Everything that we study through the book of Revelation is has happened, is happening, or will happen. All of it is literally going to happen. But we see as we go through this that, it, that there's figurative language employed. Okay, so follow me as we go along here. When God's presence is revealed, is it unusual to see earthquakes? Is it unusual to see earthquakes when God makes his presence known? One of the early references that we find in scripture regarding the earth shaking is in Exodus chapter 19. In verse 18, it says, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And what else (laughs) happened? The whole mountain trembled greatly. Why did the mountain tremble? The mountain trembled because of the presence of a holy God. And I'm going to point out as we think about the second coming and how it affects the cosmos. We're talking about almighty holy God coming back to a a planet, a universe that is cursed by sin. And there's going to be a reaction. What we're seeing described in this passage is that reaction being carried out. 
The whole universe is shaken at the day of the Lord. Well, why? We should ask ourselves that question. Why is heaven and earth shaken at the return of Christ? This is a visceral response from a fallen creation to the presence of a holy God. One of the great problems that I have with Christ coming back to establish an earthly kingdom on this sinful, corrupted planet is he's not coming back like he left. He's coming back without any shroud, without any covering of his holiness. There's no way. There's no way this earth can coexist with a holy God in, in, in his presence. It can't happen. That presents a little challenge to a thousand-year earthly reign. And I have much respect for them that hold that, that opinion, but I differ. And that's the primary reason that I do. He's not coming back the same way he left. He's coming back as conquering king. So the whole universe is shaken. So the sixth seal here is a picture of the last day. Another perspective, another camera shot of it, if you will. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. This is referring to the what we call the great white throne judgment, which is at the last day. This is just another picture of it. So what's going on here with this um, vision that John has in verse 12? He opens the sixth seal. Behold, there's a great earthquake. The sun becomes black as sackcloth. The whole moon became like blood. Why do we have the sun and the moon? If you guys are doing your reading through scripture in a year, you've already covered this. In the last week, as you start out the book of Genesis, why did God create the sun, the moon, and the stars? Yes. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let, the, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. What do you suppose is happening when the lights get turned off? Because that's the picture. When God turns off the lights, what is he telling humanity? Times and seasons, we're done. That's it. Joel chapter 2, verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Same question that John asks in the book of Revelation. Who can stand? Who can endure it? The scripture is overwhelming with the evidence that God will come back in the way that he says he will. And it leaves us with the, the most important question that we can ask. Who is ready? Who can stand? Who can endure it? In Joel chapter 3, verse 15, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. Say, that's going to be a horrific day. Well, for some it will be. But if you look at the rest of that verse, Joel chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. He utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. And listen to what he says. But the Lord is a refuge to his people. What does the culmination and the end of time mean for his people? Should we dread the great day? The great day should be dreaded by those who refuse to repent. It should be feared. And mankind in his hard-heartedness rejects the concept that God exists, that his word is true, that he will keep his promises, but he's coming. There are two responses to the second coming that we see in scripture. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 17, the seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nation fell. When God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink or drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were there were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and listen to the response. If if you were present for what he is describing here, how would you respond when God sends hail? And by the way, I believe he sent literal hail on Sodom and Gomorrah, as scripture said. When God sends hail on humanity and judgment, what is their response? It says they cursed God. They cursed God for the plague of the hail. There's a picture here. We see this in, in, in Exodus as God was bringing his judgment via Moses and Aaron on Pharaoh, what did we find happened? It's Calvin who said the same sun that softens or melts the wax hardens the clay. And we see as God brings his judgment on the hard-hearted, the unrepentant, the rebellious, what does it do? Well, you think, naturally speaking, reasonably speaking, if we saw this, we would cry out to God. I watched the other night. there's a football game in which a man had a heart attack and collapsed on the field. And just like that, we had people on their knees praying. Now, not five years ago, we were ridiculing a young man who took a knee and prayed after he would score a touchdown. And, and what happens when calamity strikes? Immediately, secularism goes out the window, doesn't it? Right out the window. In fact, one of the announcers on Sports Center prayed on air. I would expect him to be fired within the next week or two. But, but my point is this. When calamity strikes, you remember 9-11, the national response. I had, I had um, in front of about three or 400 construction workers, the, the general contractor asked me to lead the entire job site in prayer. It's unlike every, anything I had ever seen. There is a visceral response of fear when tragedy comes. 
that in some cases will urge men to repent. In other cases, it will harden. The sun becomes black, John's vision says. And, and that's an, that is an imagery of what? Judgment. Have you ever been afraid of the dark? Are you still afraid of the dark? Christine, you're not afraid of the dark. Okay. I don't blame you. I like to sleep with a little light on myself. But you've done the dad duty, right? When you put the kids to bed, you check the closet, make sure there's nothing in it. You check under the bed, make sure there's nothing under the bed, no monsters anywhere to be seen, and then peace can ensue. Well, the picture here of the sun becoming black is the picture of the ultimate turning out of the lights. And in Matthew chapter 8, talking about the centurion who has a sick son, he comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I need your help. Will you heal my son? And, and he didn't want to inconvenience the Lord. And he, with his faith, understood the power of the Lord Jesus and said, if you will but say the word, you don't even need to come to my house. I know by the, by the speaking of the word, you can heal my son. And Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 8, when he heard this, he marveled at the centurion and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you that no one in Israel have I found, or no, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What was he saying there? I'm including the Gentiles. While the sons of the kingdom circumcised, listen to this, will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember one of the plagues that we talked about on Egypt when the Lord um, turned off the light for three days? The scripture says when he did that, it was darkness that could be felt so dark. And obviously in that darkness, there was no turning on of lamps. There was no, there was no light anywhere. God shut the sun off on Egypt. And it was a reminder of a great and powerful judgment that was coming that's far greater than the one that they experienced in those 10 plagues. It was a darkness that could be felt. In Isaiah 34, verse 1, draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it in the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over to slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven, listen to this. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, be dissolved. And the skies will roll up like a scroll. And their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. That is not popular to preach in our culture. But God is angry. He said, God's not angry. The picture that scripture is painting is that he is storing up his wrath. The wicked are investing in their future. 
and it is stacking up condemnation on top of condemnation. And God is angry. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear about an angry God. Our culture loves to talk about a loving God. Yes, he is loving. But he's also angry. Joel chapter 2, verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen to this. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. You know who calls on the Lord? Those who the Lord calls. The ones that call out to God are the ones whom the Lord calls. The other illustration that we have or the picture that we have from John is the moon becomes like blood. Isaiah 13. And by the way, if you're not catching this, the book of Revelation is pulling all sorts of of imagery from the Old Testament, isn't it? Isaiah 13, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And this picture, by the way, and Isaiah directly correlates what's going on with this imagery. Verse 11, he says, I will punish the world for its evil. And the wicked for their iniquity, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold. Listen to this, Mark. The, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. This is a picture in the sixth seal of God's frightful judgment against sin that culminates in the end of history and is brought to bear on this corrupted creation. Peter says it very plainly in 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 7, he says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slow, slowness, but is patient toward you. Who is the you? The you is the beloved. He's patient toward the beloved, not wishing that any should perish or be destroyed. And, and the word wishing here is, is really the word will. It's, it's not this passive, oh, God. God's not really wanting anyone to perish. He's talking about the saints and he is unwilling and he is bringing to bear the power of his will to keep you and I from being destroyed. That's what he's saying. He said, but that all should reach repentance. Well, who are the all? The elect. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, a great noise or rushing sound. And the heavenly bodies, this is what we're talking about, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed or burnt up. Think about that. Now, I need to put replacement windows in the house. It needs to be done. But you know what? I'm not saying we shouldn't put windows in when windows need to be put in. But you know what's going to happen to them? They're going to burn. They're going to burn. We put so much emphasis in this life on things that won't last. And the picture here is God is going to shake the universe. We're going to look at a passage in Hebrews that talks about the fact that God is going to shake it to see what can stand, what can last, and what can remain. After God shakes this world, there's going to be only certain things that will stand, only certain things that will remain. And the question for you and I is, is it what we're focused on? Are we focused on the things that are going to remain? Because if we're not, we're wasting our time. We really are. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And Peter asks this question, seeing or since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, Peter's saying, here, here's the bottom line. This earth is going to burn. This universe is going to burn. I hate to break it to all these people that are trying to save the planet. It's not going to stop it. And the global warming that God's talking about here, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for or expecting and hastening or preparing for the coming of the day of God? Because of, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. What promise is that? Well, the promise in Isaiah 65, in verse 17, which says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but the glad, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Peter is reminding the church that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. That's key. Because all of creation is under the bondage of sin. So the question before us this morning, the serious question is, what is the priority of our life? How would you answer that question if you had to answer it out loud in front of the entire church? What is the priority of What drives you? What consumes you? All of created. Why, why is God going to create a new heaven and a new earth? He's corrupted by sin. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Do you remember? I'm sure we won't be far from people. Yes. In Genesis 3:7, he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is what? Ground. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
That's why it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption because it groans in travail, waiting for redemption. Verse 13, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Isaiah chapter 24, listen to this. 21 of Isaiah 24. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven. Think, what did the, what did the sun and the moon and the stars do? On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven. In heaven and the kings of the earth, on the earth, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit and they will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. The moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. The Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. How do you think God feels about sin? If he is going to burn all of that, which he said when he made it was what? good yes how serious is sin that he is going to destroy this universe that he created and called good when it didn't do anything it was subjected because of our sin because of adam's sin but the impact of sin is so devastating that even creation is going to have to be replaced it's going to have to be redeemed and fixed. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about it. We see beauty in nature everywhere. And we live in, in the western part of North Carolina. There's, I can't think of a more beautiful place on the earth to live than where we get to live. It's corrupted by sin. God says, I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Ezekiel 32 I will drench the land, even to the mountains, with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. Bright lights of heaven will I might make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Verse 14, it says, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island removed from its place. Again, we go back to Joel, chapter 3, verse 15. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw from their shining. The Lord from Zion utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But again, listen to this. The Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold people of Israel. Here is comfort if you think about this. If we're alive at the return of, of Christ, what an amazing, what an amazing spectacle. Have you ever thought, what if he forgets me? What if he overlooks me? Well, we're going to see in the next chapter because there is a pause, an intermission, if you will, between Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 8 that deals with that very concern. Because as this is being given to the seven churches, the first thing that comes up is who is going to be able to stand? Who's going to be able to survive this? 
Revelation 7 will answer that very question. We end in chapter 6 with those words, who can stand? Revelation 7 answers that. But Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He will not forget his people. We can rest in that. That's why the scripture says, when, when this earth is being destroyed, the Lord is a refuge to his people. A stronghold. Verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. You would think the world would be excited. Return of Christ. Why? Why do they hide themselves? Well, go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They went and hid. And before they went and hid in the trees, they clothed themselves. I think we maybe just said something. They were ashamed. This is what sin does. And as the presence of God is felt in this universe, as he makes his presence and his glory known, reveals himself for who he is, sin can do nothing but run and hide. Scripture says they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. But notice who hides themselves. There is no um, wealthy elite reception for Jesus at his return. Royalty is not standing and waiting for Jesus to disembark at his return to welcome him and to make peace with him. What does scripture tell us here? There's no difference. There's no difference between the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, slave and free. Everyone hid themselves. And this is a picture, by the way, of idolatry. And we need to ask ourselves, what is our covering? Remember the saints who are under the altar? What are they clothed in? The white robe, the righteousness of Christ. Look at what these people are trying to cover themselves with. They're trying to provide shelter. They are trying to provide for themselves security. They are trying to provide themselves a mediator. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 18. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship the moles and to the bats to enter into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliff from the terror from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And Isaiah says in verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for what for of what account is he? You know, we, we can our culture is starstruck, isn't it? Our culture worships people. 
whether it's sports heroes, whether it's pop stars, whether it's politicians, you name it. We set people on pedestals because we think they're so great. And God says, these people, when, when he comes back, are going to throw aside their idols because they can't take them all with them and they're not doing them any good. And they're going to try and hide themselves from the presence of the lamb because the lamb is coming back in wrath. In Isaiah 24, regarding who will hide from him, verse two, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. None of that matters at the return of Christ. None of it matters. Think, well, I'm in a better financial position than the other guy. Doesn't matter. I'm a boss. People work for me. People look up to me. I'm a leader. Doesn't matter. Say, well, I'm a priest. I've got an in with God. Doesn't matter. He gives this list that reminds us God is no respecter of persons. The day of the Lord doesn't care about our financial or social status, class, ethnicity, or nationality. In Acts chapter 10, after God reveals to Peter that he is not to call common what God has called, what God has cleansed or made clean, he comes to this realization in Acts 10 34 when he says, Regarding Cornelius and the Gentiles, Peter, the light turns on for him. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. What was he thinking up until that point? God has God has a peculiar people and they are all Israelites. I don't want to talk to these filthy Gentiles. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. And from that moment, his ministry changed. His ministry completely changed. When the Lord comes back, what are we anchored to? What are our priorities? If you knew the Lord would come back in one week, what would you be doing? Verse 16. They called to the mountains and the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. That little helpless lamb as it were slain, now is coming back with the fury of his wrath. And they're hiding themselves from him. The full glory of the Godhead is on display. He is not veiled like he was when he was here last time. In Isaiah or Hosea 10, verse 8, it says, The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, to the hills fall on us. These idolaters would rather be buried alive than face the wrath of the Lamb and repent. These are hardened in their sin. Repenting is not an option. They just want to get away. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? In Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. By the way, is theology important? 
we need to know who God is because our concept of who God is and our theology can sometimes omit this. Mark, you were talking about in Bible study how, how, how trite we can become. God is my homeboy. Man, people that think that are not reading scripture, they're not seeing the full gamut of who God is in his person. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him and the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And listen to this. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. What an amazing picture. Here is a wrathful God who is going to pour out his full fury on sin. And then Nahum adds this statement, the Lord is good. Yes, he is. That's why he's going to do this. And he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And most importantly, he knows those who take refuge in him. We, we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. It's uncomfortable. But scripture, if we read it, if we study it, there's no getting away from it. The unrepentant are investing in their future. They are storing up wrath. Romans chapter 2 reminds us of this. In verse 5 of Romans 2, but because of the hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There are two responses to the Lord's return. One is going to be hiding, the running, the fleeing. By the way, there's no getting away. There is no escaping. But listen to this by way of encouragement for those who have repented, those who find their refuge in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. That's worthy of an amen. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that we whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. What does he say to do with that? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The wrath of God is coming. And what should the saints be doing? We should be encouraging each other. We should be building each other up. He has not destined his people for wrath. Romans 9.22, Paul talks about this in, in and the flip side, he says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience? Vessels of wrath, what? Prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called or he has called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. The great day of the Lord is going to be an amazing display of his glory, where he will display his full wrath 
and anger against sin and also his amazing grace on sinners that have found refuge in his son. God is going to shake this universe. And this is the sifting that Jesus talked about regarding the wheat and the tares. And the question for us this morning is, what about our life will stand up to the shaking that is coming? What about our lives will stand up to the shaking that is coming? What are our priorities? In Hebrews 12, verse 25, as we wrap up this morning, it says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. It's talking about the warning of scripture. For if they do not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we, will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What are the things that will remain? The things that will, will remain are one thing or one people, and that is those who are standing in the righteousness of Christ. Everything else will be shaken away. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Mark, we talked about. That promise made to David, carried, carried out with Solomon, the kingdom that would never see an end, that is the kingdom that he's talking about. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When God shakes this world, his kingdom is untouched. And thus, because of that, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Listen to this. With reverence and awe. We don't call God our homeboy. We reverence him and we worship him in awe for God. Listen, for God is a consuming fire. Sun and the moon are dark and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people. Question is this morning, are you taking refuge in Christ? Or will you be one of those crying out for something, anything to cover you? At his appearance. Who can stand? That's the question. I'll leave you with this verse. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore since we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained access by faith. Listen to this. In this into this grace. In which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Who can stand? Scripture answers that for us. Those who have been justified by faith, who have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, they will stand. And we stand even now. We come into his presence boldly because of Christ. We do not, as the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, have to fear his return. But man, this world should. And it should give us a sense of urgency in our lives, knowing that this day is coming, and it's coming soon. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the warning of your word. Lord, I pray that if there are any here this morning who have not repented of their sin, 
Father, who have not seen the blood applied to the doorpost of their life, who are finding shelter in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day their life is quickened and regenerated, that they might turn to you. Father, we know that you are tarrying now for the salvation of your people, your elect, and we pray that as today the gospel goes out across this entire world as it's preached and taught, that you would accomplish the saving of your people. And Father, for those of us that belong to you, help us to see the seriousness of sin. Help us not to trifle and play around with sin like a cat does a mouse, thinking that we can handle it. Father, help us to see the seriousness of it. Help us to see it from your perspective. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, that you would empower us with your spirit, that you would use us for your honor and glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen.